This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is June 13th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the distinguished Simon Belanger. How you doing, bro? I, um, I'm fired up for these episodes because there's lots of good news that like has unfolded in the last like I want to say 48 hours. That's and it's not boring news. It's 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 fun news. So I think that's why I'm fired up. How yeah, you doing? yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, I think uh, there's definitely. Let's just say I don't know if it's positive or not for some of the news I'll be talking about, but definitely interesting nonetheless. And I agree with you. A lot of stuff happened in the last 48 hours, and we. You know, I do my notes a bit in advance, but I always leave room in case something comes up like it happened the last couple of days. Uh, before we do that, some administrative things. Uh, I am hiring a Canadian developer, full stack developer. If you want to work for me full time on the Stratosphere product and the FinChat product, be in, uh, be with our awesome team in, e- in the ecosystem. My LinkedIn is in the show notes. My LinkedIn will have a job there. It's my most recent post as well. Uh, and the reason I'm not connecting just the job post, because uh, if you're listening to this and we've taken it down, but you still want to reach out because we want to hire for other roles as well, uh, you can just reach out on LinkedIn. So send a connection. So go to the show notes. Uh, Simo, did you watch the Canadian Open? I, I don't know if you're golf guy but did you did you watch the canadian open i only on watch when tiger woods plays but uh, no i didn't watch it okay. but i definitely watch what you're going to be talking about yeah nick taylor has has finally done it uh canadian has not won the canadian open golf tournament in 69 nice years and nick taylor broke the spell with a 72-foot putt in a historic fashion to uh, have a Canadian at the top of the leaderboard on at the end of the day on Sunday. So congratulations, sir. It was it was drama-filled, and uh, it was you know it felt like a Canadian heritage moment watching it because it's been so so long, and the crowd was super fired up. So. Uh, it's always good to see Canadians compete well in sports on the global stage. Yeah, no, and I the only thing I need to uh, watch on YouTube, so I saw his, pot, his putt, but uh, I need to watch a video of his buddy getting, like, sacked or something by security. <laughs> yeah, I heard it was pretty epic. It was brilliant. So Adam Hadwin is a professional golfer who, who finished 10 under in the tournament. So he was, like, tied for 7th or 8th. Uh, he was in the top 10. And so he had a brilliant tournament as well. And, you know, all the Canadian guys are up on the 18th tee watching this playoff. Uh, so, you know, you got Mike Weir, you got Corey Connors, you got Hadwin there. And they're just, they're waiting, they're watching, right? And he hits this putt. Hadwin runs out with a bottle of champagne to spray it on him. And a security guard out of like left field just drills him like like perfect <laughs> perfect tackle and the nfl like clipped it up and like saying like that this guy needs to be drafted because it's like perfect tackle <laughs> it was just amazing like uh and and hadwin took it obviously well not 
like he wasn't a baby about it. Yeah. He took it well. He knew it was funny, and how, uh, you, it was good. yeah. How bad do you think the security guard felt after that? He must have like apologized like fifteen times to the guy. Like, oh man, I'm so sorry. He must have felt bad, but at the end of the day, like he was just doing his job. Yeah. Like, like Adwin came screaming out of there, like with a bottle of champagne, like. Who is this guy? Uh, meanwhile, he like just finished top 10 in the tournament. It's like hilarious. Um, in Canadian business and sports news, breaking news, as of like an hour or two ago, we got a group led by Canadian businessmen Michael and Lauer has reached an agreement to buy the NHL's Ottawa Senators. The team announced Tuesday that the group will purchase 90% from the Melnick family. The daughters will retain 10%. And the deal is reportedly worth nearly $1 billion. So Maybe they're valuing it at $1 billion and they're buying nine hundred, buying that stake for 900 mil, which is what, quote, give or take, end quote, what Commissioner Gary Bettman expected the team in Canada's capital to be worth. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's about time. I think uh, from what I was hearing, I think Bruce Garriott uh, from the Ottawa Sun was following the the whole thing pretty quickly. And just a couple of days ago, I was listening to a clip from him on a radio show. And he was saying that it sounded like the Melnick family had overplayed their hands a little bit because you had some of the top bidders that were starting to back out. And I mean, I think they finally, you know, were able to come to an agreement. I think one of the sticking point was the equity that the daughters would keep. Um, not every group was kind of on board with that. And the also the uncertainty for those not familiar with Ottawa, um, you know, where the Sens play right now, the Canadian Tire Center, it's a pretty shitty area to, uh, to play in. I'll be very honest. It's not, you know, Canada's a suburb it's not a it's a nice place don't get me wrong it's just on the west end right so ottawa's a pretty spread out city so if you live on the east end you're literally having to drive like an hour an hour and a half just to get there maybe even two hours in traffic and then back and forth after the game so i think big part of the hang up is those groups there were some real estate developers in there right the real estate component was really important and being able to secure um kind of a new area to build the arena downtown and michael and lauer i think he was able to get a pretty good team along with him and uh the last thing i'll say he's gonna have Donovan Bailey joined Really? In. Okay, he's I part saw. of that deal. But yeah. Ann Lauer will have to yeah. sell. So he's a minority owner in the Montreal Canadiens. So he owns 10% of the team. So, um, oh, yeah, so he's going to have to sell that. But uh, 10% of the Montreal Canadiens, I think that's uh, probably worth a couple hundred millions. At, <laughs> a couple hundred million at least, right? Yeah. Wow, that's 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 a big piece too. So I, I guess, yeah, you can't own... Both no, I guess it would be like conflict of interest, right? Because, you know, you're the owner, you could like, if you like one team more (laughs) than the other, you're kind of, you know, not giving the same kind of support to one team versus the other. So I think that's the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I think it makes sense to block that. Quote, Michael represents everything we could have hoped for coming to this process. A passionate owner who's committed to Ottawa. Uh and 10% Montreal. <laughs> we believe it is a momentous yeah. day for the national capital region. Uh, the Melnick daughters of the late former Eugene Melnick will retain 10% uh, stake in, in the in the Ottawa Senators. And um, yeah, so to me, it's all about the arena, yeah. right? Like, because you just hinted at it. I have buddies in, who live in Canada, 
I've been to Canada. Great, great region. Some, some wonderful wildlife out there. But not a good spot for Ottawa's hockey arena. It's too far. It makes very little sense given, you know, people want to go to the game and like, you know, do stuff after and go to the entertainment district, dr- have some drinks. And uh, that falls apart really quick when you have to drive over an hour to get there. So uh, I think it all falls on that. All right. Uh, big news from the Bank of Canada late last week. What do we yeah, got? So, I mean, if you've been living under the rock, uh, the Bank of Canada raised rates again. So they raise its overnight interest rate by 25 basis point to 4.75%. It was the first time they raised a benchmark interest rate since January. They, uh, The Bank of Canada said that they would pause interest rate to take time and assess what the impact of the rapid rates would do to the Canadian economy as a whole, because there's, you know, notoriously there's a lagging effect. They also said that they would make further decision based on data. And a lot of people, I think, were kind of surprised uh, by this move. Uh, maybe a week or so beforehand, the market starting putting this almost around 50-50. But, you know, just maybe a few months ago or a month ago, a lot of people weren't thinking that they would actually go ahead and raise again. Most people would thinking that it would stay stable or potentially rate cuts towards the end of the year. And it was, I think, a wake-up call for a lot of people. I did a Twitter space with Dan from our real estate podcast. And for those who haven't been to one of Dan's spaces, there's a lot of people in the real estate industry, including mortgage brokers and realtors. And one thing that I was interested, I had this asked a question So what are they seeing from their clients who had low fixed mortgages that are coming up for renewal in the next year or two? And for the most part, it sounds like it's a mix. Some people are prepared, but some it's really sticker shock when they're seeing those new rates and those increased uh, payments. And, you know, it's it's something to keep in mind because um, at the end of the day, you can't really control what the Bank of Canada is doing. And a lot of people were making assumptions. We saw the real estate market even tick up with, I think, people getting used to these higher rates and just thinking it could not go higher. And I also took the time to listen to Pud Baudry, who's the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada. He did a speech a few days after the hike was announced. And essentially, they... They did that move because economic data came in stronger than expected. So services and good inflation has been ticking higher, which was not what they expected, primarily due to higher than expected demand. Unemployment is still at historical lows, and they still think the headline inflation is trending towards 3% this year, but it's mainly driven by lower energy prices, and that core inflation is stickier than they expected. So... um, You know, I think at the end of the day, it's important to keep in mind, we really don't know where the Bank of Canada will go. And I think it's clear that they will be uh, data dependent here. Uh, And it's I think it's just for a lot of people is just, you know, not trying to make assumptions, especially if you're trying to make some big decisions going forward and, you know, making sure that you purchase things or if you have a business that you invest, but you invest within your means and you have also a margin of safety and 
The last thing I'll mention here is CPI data came out today for the U.S. And from the headlines I saw, most people were pretty excited seeing 4% headline numbers. But if you dig in through the data, um, a lot of it was because of lower energy prices and core CPI is closer to 5%. So um, I still think, unfortunately, there's going to be some inflation pain and potentially some more hate error rate hikes in the future. You just used a really good word, sticker shock. Yeah. I haven't heard I haven't heard anyone use that word in so long. And usually, you know, that I hear that word like you like you go buy something and they're like, oh, that's way more than I thought it was. That's a really good word for when people yeah. are buying houses and the rates are a lot higher than or like, you know, the all in cost of buying the house with rates where they are today is a lot higher. So that's a good word. A sticker shock. I like that. No, so I, I I have nothing more to add. I agree with everything that you said here. Good overview. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> no, and say. it's too bad because during this space there was a few comments too that were interesting, and someone responded like, "Oh yeah, my realtor was telling me that uh, rates would be cut by the Bank of Canada by the end of the year for sure." And now I'm seeing that. So I'm kind of rethinking what my realtor was telling me. And someone responded like, why are you listening to your realtor for interest rate predictions? <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. it's kind of true. And you have to remember, too, where people are coming from. Some people may have, you know, no pun intended, but interest in telling you a certain story. Right. They're dependent. Their income's on that. They may think they're right, but. At the end of the day, you just have to be careful. And these are things out of your control. And I think for me, and I think you're the same as well, just plan for the worst. And that way, worst case scenario doesn't happen. You're just better off and you can decide what you do with that extra money. You bring up a good point. And, you know, we know a lot of realtors listen to the show. Like there's tons of realtors yeah. in Canada just based on statistics. I, I love you guys. Uh, but for everyone listening, Understand incentives, and the realtors know this too. Understand the incentives of human beings. It will help you so much in your life, in business and in friendships and in everything, because if you understand the incentive that they make commission from selling homes, what are they incentivized to do? To make you want to buy homes yeah. <laughs> and sell homes. They want you to transact the same way if you go to a brokerage most brokerages are built to try to make you transact more. They will build notification systems into the product so that you will panic sell or FOMO buy into certain stocks. Why? Because they are incentivized to encourage transactions, to encourage trading, more, more shares that go from Joe's hands to Sally's hands on their platform the more money they make. So just understand incentives, especially in the financial industry, and you'll understand why people act the certain way that they do. And then you can make your own decision from yeah. there, right? Like you have to factor in. Yeah, and their things. intentions might be good, right? They might actually think that rates will go down and the markets will pick up. And if you don't buy right now, you will regret it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's also keeping in mind that the bank central banks don't even know what they'll do in terms of interest rates. So trying to predict it is a fool's, uh, I don't know what this saying is, but <laughs> fool's errand. Fool's yeah. Errand. Yeah, there you go. yeah. Yeah. That's why I, you'll never see me try to predict rates here because I'm, 
just smart enough to know that I don't know and that no one else will either. The same way no one can tell you what the broader stock market's going to do in the next six to 12 months. It is a fool's errand, as you suggested. Okay, uh, Reddit. Have you have you been up to date on the Reddit drama, or is this new to you? There's a lot of I've drama seen, on the internet. Yeah, I've seen some headlines. Isn't that they'll char- start charging for third party using their APIs? Is that it? Something like that. That is correct. Yeah. Yes, okay. you you're you're on the money. So today is day two of a two day Reddit blackout or. A site-wide <laughs> protest <laughs> uh, against the company for charging uh, egregious pricing for third to third-party applications for their API. I'm going to get to what that is if you're new to the concept of an API. But, Simon, the first rule of protesting, all right? You never state when you're done your protest. The first rule of protest is never say, this is a two-day protest, because then you'll never get what you want. Like if, if I'm boycotting something and I'm like, I am boycotting this for 48 hours and the person being boycotted are like, oh, okay. So in 48 hours, you're going to be done your temper tantrum and we can go back to work. You know, like that's how these things get treated. So the first rule of protesting, my friends on the internet, don't state your end date. You say, internal further notice until we can come to a conclusion. Reminds so, me of uh, remember Etsy sellers when they were protesting these uh, the higher seller fees seller fees yeah it kind of reminds me of that a little bit yeah a little bit right it's like this happens anytime you have a two sided marketplace or a social network right like the 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 users know that the platform relies on you to make their marketplace and to have that network effect so. The the people who are moderators of Reddit know that Reddit relies on their basically free labor to moderate the website. So, I mean, and, and it's fair enough. The only thing that I'll say is like they do have a lot of power or like willingness here because these people are just doing it for volunteer for whatever reason. Like, I guess they really like that community. But like every other social platform like has droves and floors of people who do content moderation like you know on instagram and stuff but anyway so let's get to the core of this so more than seven thousand subreddits have gone private or read only in response to the api pricing which is forcing developers of apps to shut down at the end of the month if they cannot afford the new pricing uh, this all started apparently from Christian Selig, who's the founder of the app Apollo, which to my knowledge is the most commonly used third-party application for viewing Reddit. And so they posted that the app would have to be shutting down because they can't possibly pay this much for the API calls. So what is an API? Uh, I'll explain this like I'm five, like a good, like like if I'm on Reddit. And To use an API means you simply are tapping into the technology or tapping into the infrastructure, tapping into the data of some other company or open source. So I'll use the example of Reddit. Uh, Say I wanted to build an app, Simone, which aggregates posts just on Canadian finance. So I'm going to make an app. I'm going to 
you know, make a wrapper around it, make it look nice, and it's going to bring in a feed of Canadian finance content from Reddit, and I'm going to tap into their API to do it so that it will come onto the app. I'm going to call it Credit, Canadian Finance Reddit. Uh, you heard it here first, brilliant name. <laughs> um, typically, an API will cost money to use. Every API that I subscribe to for Stratosphere, my companies, we have contractual agreements, usually between thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars per year to use an API. These are usually large business-to-business enterprise type contracts. And it costs money for the company to allow them to hit the API infrastructure. So if the API is free from Reddit, and my little Canadian finance Reddit app can use it for free and charge money. You know, I say I charge 10 bucks a month to use it. Reddit's getting, no, they're getting screwed out of this deal. All of a sudden, viewers are not going on their platform because now they're not collecting the advertising revenue. They're using their content and, and monetizing it off platform. Now, this is very, very common to allow people to use it for a cost, like for a fee. So apparently a bunch of people are users of this Apollo app and now protesting it. I personally never even heard of it before this, uh, but I'm not a Redditor person. So I, I already see enough people arguing about politics on Twitter, just enough amount. So I'm, I'm good. I don't need to also go to Reddit. The problem here is the pricing is the unit economic fall off apparently because Apollo makes 500K in revenue they disclosed and the API will cost them around $20 million a year. So it's completely unfeasible from a business perspective. So perhaps the API needs to dramatically come down in price, but I don't think Reddit cares. Look, like in my view, this is a 48-hour protest from users of the platform because they're going to start charging third-party apps versus have it free. No one cares. No one cares. It's such a mob mentality from these users of people who probably don't care at all. In two days, Red's going to be back to normal. Everyone who says they care about this API that they didn't even know they had, they don't care about third-party apps because they just go on Reddit anyways. They're going to go back to doom-scrolling Reddit in two days or two weeks. Uh, that's it. Done. Silly. Next story. It's 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 <laughs> It's funny watching the internet mob that is Reddit. I, I don't think this is, I think this is going to be nothing in two weeks. And, and I, I, I'm almost positive I'm right on this one. Yeah, I was like browsing and just having a look at what the uh, Apollo app is. I think it's just an app that taps into all of Reddit, basically. And it's just a different way to browse it. It's, it's just like a, a different nice, UX and UI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Better in, like, I think the users think it's a better interface. Um, so if I was that guy, I'd just sell it to, to Reddit. If, uh, yeah, so apparently he tried. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this is where it gets kind of juicy. All right. So he tried to sell. He said, look, millions of people use my app because they like the UI better than what you guys have built. So why don't we just work together on a deal? If I'm not going to be able to use this anymore, maybe you can buy us for a reasonable price and use this UX UI, and then you don't lose the like 15 million active users that only use Apollo versus Reddit. And 
they basically shot that down and Reddit shot that down and he recorded the call and oh made it public. And I don't know if that's legal. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, if any lawyer is, uh, yeah, know whether that's legal or not, I'm assuming the US. So uh, let us know. Yeah. It might be state by state. Um, I don't, I don't know, know if that's legal. So I, I, I don't, I don't know if this guy just like completely sewered himself or not, but uh, I don't think the millions and millions of people who are protesting online give two shits about third-party apps and their API. They probably just heard about it two weeks ago when this all, or three days ago when this all spun out. Um, if you're going to protest, guys, you can't set an end date. This is... <laughs> This is the most elementary rule of protesting. Yeah, no, that was interesting. I Like I said, I heard about it, but uh, it's nice to get the breakdown here. So I guess we'll move on to something we had alluded last week. So touch on it quickly. But the uh, SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S., um, they are suing Coinbase, but also Binance. And they've also sued a bunch of other crypto exchanges. Um, so it's not for those who are following this a little bit. You'll probably know this. It's not that much of a surprise for uh, Coinbase, mainly because the SEC, what they do is they'll do send a Wells notice. And they did so a couple months ago for Coinbase and a Wells notice is just a formal notification from the SEC that it is considering bringing enforcement action against an individual or entity. Now, the SEC, there's kind of three main points here. I'll try to break it down. So the SEC alleges that 13 coins or tokens or shit coins, whatever you want to call them, listed on Coinbase are considered securities and should be registered as such. They allege that Coinbase staking program is also a security offering. Staking is just a way to validate transaction on certain blockchains, such as Ethereum. It's proof of stake now. And in return, you get a reward or a yield. And Coinbase really set it up in a way that they thought would comply with securities laws because it was essentially a pass-through for users. So what the user would get would be whatever reward was associated with that staking minus just a fee from Coinbase, where other staking or yield programs that were being offered, they were essentially taking the user's money or assets and then using their discretion to try and get higher yield. So that's kind of different practices here. Um, and third, the SEC alleged that Coinbase wallet service count as a brokerage and is operating without being registered. This one is really weird because Coinbase is offering access to decentralized protocol. It has no control over through its wallet. And basically, the SEC is alleging that if you offer a wallet that lets user access decentralized protocol, you are, in effect, issuing the assets that are associated with that protocol. So it's really weird. Uh, Brian Armstrong, which is the CEO from Coinbase, um, tweeted after that. He gave uh, an overview of the complaint and basically where they stand. One of the things that I had mentioned is it's kind of funny that they're doing this now when they had allowed Coinbase to go public. And if they had issues with Coinbase, they could have, you know, voiced those issues or prevented them to even go public at that point. But 
it's pretty clear at this time, at this point, that Gary Gensler, who's the uh, chair of the SEC, um, that is definitely going after a lot of these uh, crypto exchanges in the US. They also sued Binance. And I won't go into much detail about Binance because this one's a, a there's some similarities, but it's different as well. So there are some actions that are against specifically the CEO of Binance CZ. Um, but the last thing here in terms of fallout is that the news came this whole SEC action, it actually led Robinhood, which also has some crypto trading on its platform, to announce that they would be delisting the coins that were named in the SEC lawsuit against Coinbase and Binance. And as a result... I saw eToro, which is another global one, is doing the same thing. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, what's happening in a nutshell is really... I mean, yeah, it's kind of weird what's happening in the U.S. because there's no laws that are targeted towards crypto assets. So what the SEC is doing is they're saying, well, we are interpreting the law this way um, and we're going to put some enforcement actions. And Coinbase is the first firm and they probably have they're the only ones that have the resources to do so, most likely that are fighting against the SEC because most of the time it's been settlements and agreeing to uh, delist certain tokens or coins or stop certain services. So exchanges have agreed to that with the SEC as a settlement. But Coinbase is basically saying, well, we'll bring you to court and we'll let the courts decide whether you're interpreting that correctly or not. And they're also hoping that uh, U.S. legislators will actually come out with legislation that is, you know, fair for cryptocurrency and addresses the differences between that and the traditional financial system. This is such a shit show. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) it's Well, it's also um, one thing that's pretty interesting and has its own set of issues, but since the U.S. is clear, or the SEC, I would say, has clearly shown that they're cracking down on it, um, China has actually been changing its stance. So now they're allowing in Hong Kong, which is oftentimes a test ground for China. So it's not mainland China, but it's also, you know, pretty much controlled by the Chinese government, even though it's like a special, um, you know, independent. It's just very convoluted. But essentially, (laughs) they are loosening rules in Hong Kong, which could be a prelude of what will be happening in mainland China, which they had banned crypto a few years ago. So it seems it almost seems like China, anything that the US does, it's trying to fill the gap counter position. Exactly. Counter position. I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, because as we know, with China, um, they can definitely rug pull people. They've done it before, whether it's crypto, whether it's traditional investing in stocks or, you know, or debt, whatever it is. I mean, that's a reality with investing in China is that, you know, you don't have the check and balances that you have over here. This is what seems like a gray area in the law as it sits today. Both both sides, the SEC. I So I've from the research I've done, both sides have very valid points on the same law, which is what makes this so confusing for pretty much everyone, including the people on both sides of this lawsuit, Coinbase and the SEC. Armstrong saying, look, you buffoons, you guys allowed us to go public 
in 2021. Uh, you reviewed our business. You, you know, we, we, we went public in the U.S. via the SEC, now the same entity who wants to sue us, or is, uh, should I say. And the, the rules are not clear, to, to Brian's point. They're, they're not clear. It seems like they're open to interpretation. Both, both parties seem to be right, which is also confusing. And I, I don't really know where this goes, but what is clear and what I do, I do know where this goes is they are Gensler's making their stance that this is un-American to have a competing currency, right? And everyone who's in that ecosystem will not be handled nicely to. And, and, and uh, you know, we talked about this on the last episode. If you think, if you, if you thought the U.S. will be friendly to a competing currency, you are off your rocker. That's my take. And uh, I, I think we're seeing that play out in real time. Yeah, but what's funny in all of that is Bitcoin is the one that's considered like a commodity and not a security. So it's very... That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's very... That's why it's... Uh, you're right. It's very confusing the stands are taking. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely obviously pro-crypto for the most part. But just watching some of the videos put out by Gary Gansler, um, there... <laughs> There's definitely a lack of clarity, right? Like you, you yeah. would want him to be clear and even like kind of seeing some clips of when he went in front of Congress and in, you know, different lawsuits with the SEC lawyers. It's just very confusing their stance on it. Um, but like you said, hopefully, I mean, to me, as long, you know, it's law, it's lawmakers, right? It's in their camp. They need to you know, agree and try to get to some kind of law pass that makes everyone, I guess, somewhat unhappy. That way, you know, it's a good <laughs> law. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I am not a lawyer. I hate le reading legal documents. It's like my, I'm like allergic to legal documents and uh, which sucks as a startup because I have to review a oh, lot yeah. of legal and work with a lot of lawyers all the time. So it's uh, that's that's probably the, my least favorite part about my job. So reading all of this stuff is like reading a completely different language to me. It's it's literally legalese for a reason. Yes, <laughs> so far from my knowledge, I I do think the SEC is right to point out that their mandate is to protect investors. That's their mandate, right? We can all agree on that mandate. They, that's, the, that's the one that they are set out to do. There have been a cesspool of bad actors in what I'll call crypto, which is basically what I think everything is outside of Bitcoin in all the other coins. The only thing I don't pool in there is Bitcoin because I think it has so much more utility and so much better than all of them combined. Everything else that's crypto, every project that's come out, 99.9% have gone to zero. They've been uh, uh, you know, a, a tar pit of investors losing money, bad actors, scammers, and rug pullers. Like, 
to protect investors, or I will say investors in air quote, from losing money into these assets is probably a good thing. Now, what their actual motivations are behind that, I don't know. But there does need to be something done about the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been scammed from what I'll say crypto over the past two years. And frankly, it's not, uh, it's not cool. It's not cool at all seeing people lose their money, seeing people try to gamble you know, their hard-earned money and lose it all on very highly speculative assets that are backed by nothing with no utility. The world could do with a lot less of that. And if the SEC needs to get in, to, in there to do that, I think that that's not such a bad thing. Again, this is just yeah. no, my I, interpretation. I, mean, I, I get that point of view. I mean, obviously there's... If you... Yeah, I always kind of... Not flinch, but, um, you know, I'm always critical a little bit about the investor protections because, you know, there's frauds and scams just in the traditional stock market, too. Uh, Maybe not to the same extent. That's fine. That's, you know, I totally agree. But, you know, let's just remember the SPACs, right? Not saying they were all scams, but there was definitely some fishy ones where investors lost money. And at the end of the day, you know, people that invest are grown adults and you have to... You know, in a free market, you have to also allow people to decide what they invest in. So it's a very, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be regulation. Don't get what I'm not saying. But I think there's a very fine line between, you know, trying to control what people invest in versus protecting them. And I think that's where there needs to be more clarity. Yeah, certainly. If you've been listening to the show for quite some time now and have not left us a review on your podcast player, ideally, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can rate it five stars and then leave a little review. It'll take you all of the next 15 to 30 seconds from now. I'll start my timer. And that helps us quite a lot. Uh, it really does. So if you can go on there, write something uh, write something nice, You know, make us feel good, get the endorphins bumping every time we read those. And then you can also smash the five-star thing on Spotify. All right, Simo, you have one more quick piece of news here, uh, which is looks Canadian as well. Yeah, it's go. Canadian. So um, there's a new inter-switching law that will be coming into effect. It's currently sitting with the Senate. It's gone through the House and obviously in Parliament. And um, the... Uh, the basically the law is gonna affect Canadian National Rail and CP or CPKS, but I'll I'll refer to them as Canadian Pacific CP here. And the law targets interswitching, which is essentially just when railroads from different companies meet. So if you look at a map of railroads across North America, you'll see that you know you'll see all different kinds of colors. Some will be you know Canadian National Rail, CPKS. You also see uh, Union Pacific. Pacific and all these different other companies. And when they meet, this inter-switching is currently set at a maximum of 30 kilometers where, for example, Canadian National Rail could continue up to 30 kilometers on CP's rail, but they would need authorization to do so. Now, what the new law that would be set to come into effect once it passes the Senate is that it would increase at 30 kilometers to 
a maximum of 160 kilometers. So that's a pretty significant difference. It's no surprise that the two railroads are pushing back, saying it will increase shipping times and could make costs higher, and that it is really solving a non-existent problem and that it would allow U.S. railroads to potentially expand operations into Canada. On the other hand, proponents of this new law, including various grower associations, obviously we have a lot of you know various farmer associations in Canada, say that it would help competition and reduce prices. Now, apparently... Um, there was something similar done for a three-year period in 2014, and the result was only a very, very tiny fraction of the grain transported was interchanged within that 160-kilometer span. So I own Canadian National Rail, and I'd be more than happy to own CPKS if the valuation would come down a little bit. And from my perspective, I mean... I think it would be a good thing for competition. Obviously, as an owner, um, I, <laughs> you know, I guess it's good for CNR and CP. For You're like, which hat am I wearing? Yeah, exactly. Right now. <laughs> but let's be fair. I mean, they're clearly pushing back because they have duopolies in Canada. Like, I won't. You know, I think it's. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of divided on that because I, I personally think it's probably not a bad thing. I think CNR and CP are probably overstating the impact that it would have on them. And at the end of the day, I think I saw a quote and they said, well, I mean, if they think it's going to increase competition, they can always just, you know, lower their prices. Why Why would moving the inter-switching range from 30 kilometers to 160 kilometers introduce competition? I I'm not understanding. Well, it would, for example, when you have the railways that are meeting on the U.S. border, for example, so it would just allow another carrier to use your rail for an extra 130 kilometers, which would provide them additional revenue. And you'd be, I'm assuming, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but I'm assuming probably, you know, if they use CNR's 160 kilometers worth of rail, CNR probably gets a tiny cost or a tiny fee for that, but nothing compared if they were um, actually using their own rails. So I think that's the logic behind it is that extra 160 kilometer Basically, another company can just come and have a better price and use the the railways that aren't theirs. Right. And I guess like context, like industry context would, would be very helpful because I'm just trying to picture like, you know, how far I can go with 160 kilometers just in my car. I mean, instance. yeah, I don't and think it's, it's 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 significant, but like I'm like thinking like. Pretty big countries. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like 160 kilometers in Canada is like, you know, nothing. Yeah, you don't even get from Ottawa to Montreal, like basically. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, like a fourth of a tank of gas. Like it's, I, but I don't know. Like I I don't, I don't have the the domain knowledge to say like, oh, that's going to, you know, drop a bunch of competition for stuff. And I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, It'll probably have a little bit of an impact, but it won't change anything. It'll still remain a duopoly in Canada. And obviously, these two companies love having a duopoly. Um, I mean, it's good for business. That's that's why I like railways, because there's not much competition. And clearly, that would... And no incentive for new competition. That's exactly. And that would just 
I'm, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And if someone's a, you know, railroad expert, they can let us know. But, you know, to me, I think it would just be incremental, but they're, they're probably afraid that if this goes through, then potentially it could be increased in the future. Right. So they're probably like thinking right. a few steps ahead and say, well, if we, if this goes through, then it's opening a can of worms and things could get worse in the future. So sometimes companies act like that, right? They, they're not necessarily, they're playing defense and against future potential increases. Very interesting. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, Simone. Uh, you, you did uh, macro and real estate and crypto. It's like you're like, how can we make every topic that Braden has nothing useful to add into in one episode? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the macro, I mean, I kind of talked a little bit of, of real estate no, in there. No, I'm just but messing yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, how can we expose Braden? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate you. Um, we'll see many of you guys in less than a month. The tickets are sold out. As They are. Huh? As I promised yeah. you. Okay. Yes, I, I think... Th- you know, it's funny as I think that there's 99 of a hundred. So I think that's actually not true. I think there's like literally, but you know, like it could have been sold in this, in this talk already. Uh, nope, not on the email. <laughs> not on the email. Nope. <laughs> uh, but you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, I told you guys it would sell out. So um, maybe we'll open a couple more, but highly unlikely. But uh, stay tuned for that if you still want to want to make it out. We appreciate you listening. We'll see you in a few days. We're here Mondays and Thursdays. Again, uh, timer end. Switch off the timer. Have you rated the show yet? Uh, you know, it, if not, I can reset the timer. It's going to be, you know, 15 to 30 seconds if you're on Apple Podcasts to smash that. If you're in the car, right when you get out of the car, you know, don't do this while driving. That's just, that's just not safe. But after that, you're going to want to leave us a little review and smash the five stars. Thank you so much. We'll see you in a few days. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.